Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jake. I'm on the teaching team here. Some of you may know me, some of you may not. I was on staff here for a while. It's been almost three years to the date since I've been up here, so this is a kind of a bizarre experience for me. I thought this part was done and, uh, with my life, and so I'm excited to be up with you guys this morning, excited to be um, in this series with you. Thank you for being here. If you're online, thank you guys as well. I know in the midst of the season of life I'm in, which involves a lot of soccer and things like that, online church has been a gift um, to me, so thank you for being here. In the late 90s and into the early 2000s, even in the 2010s, there was this massive increase of um, hate groups. People that were just like using the way culture was moving, using internet and mass media to, to spread their message of hate across, across the country. And one of the most well-known ones that stands out is Westboro Baptist Church. Westboro was one of these places that just gained a ton amount of traction because they were so hateful. That's, that's really what it comes down to. It's kind of crazy because the church is probably about 100 or so people at the most. It's this tiny little place. Almost everybody there is from the same family. Uh, the guy who started it had like a dozen kids and they all had lots of kids and they're all lawyers. and all, like it's, it's basically a family unit. Yet they, their message and the way they did things was so out there and so offensive that it spread very far and wide to the point that they, they were on every news show you can imagine. They were on Howard Stern. They were everywhere because people were like, what is it with these people? One member of that church was a woman um, named Megan Phelps Roper. Megan was raised in the church. She was one of the granddaughters, and, and she became a, a key figure in this movement. She remembers as early as five years, her first picket line was at five. And so she can remember when she was five years old, driving somewhere with the, the family and everyone in these vans, and her mom saying, hey, leave your dolls in the car. We're going to go out and do this thing now. And then there's pictures of her holding the signs that you probably all remember that there's no way I'm going to show in here today. This was her life. She became one of their main PR people. And when Twitter started to really take off, she became the person kind of managing their social media. And so she was really instrumental to where they were. She believed and defended their views very strongly. And she believed, like all the members of Westboro Baptist Church, that she was doing God's work. They believed that, the, the, that all the bad things that were happening in this world were God's judgment on the wickedness of the world. And it was their job to let people know how wicked they were and that that's what was going to lead them to damnation so that maybe they would notice how clean they were and live correctly. They were convinced of that. She was convinced of that. She was really good at arguing these points. But what was interesting is when she jumped on Twitter, understandably so, when she would tweet horrible things about the LGBTQ community, about um, celebrities dying, about soldiers' funerals, about all these things that were targets for Westboro, of course tons of people just moved towards her with antagonism and hate. Of course they did. Why wouldn't you respond in kind? That's the normal human thing to do, right? But then there was this other group of people, these few people that, that their first interaction started like that, but then it shifted a bit. Through, through DMs and messages and, and, and switching into other platforms, they moved towards Megan with a lot of curiosity and compassion and saying, why do you think the way you do? They asked a lot of questions both, on, on both sides of what this group believed and what she believed, and, and through this curiosity and kindness, she developed these deep, deep friendships and let her to start questioning why she was doing what she was doing, and if she really believed these things that strongly. And she talked about a moment where a, a certain celebrity died who was one that she loved in a movie, and her, everyone in her church was celebrating it because it was a chance to get their message out more. And she's like, yeah, this doesn't feel right. And it was the first flip for her. 
Over the years, she ended up leaving Westboro. It was tons of pain, tons of family trauma, and all this kind of stuff. And when she looks back and names, what led me to get out of there and now speak about how to have hard conversations? She has an incredible TED Talk about how to have conversations with people you disagree with and actually still have conversations, not hide from the issues. She said it was these people that moved to her without this presupposition of, of that we, we hate each other, with curiosity and kindness, and still able to talk about real things. The reality is Megan Phelps Roper, what led her out of Westboro Baptist Church was this grace that she experienced from these other people. She experienced a calibration of grace and truth. It wasn't devoid of what other people's viewpoints were, but in a relational way that led her to be open to shifting and changing. In my life, this has been the case as well. Whether it's a change of viewpoint or a a shortcoming in an area of my life, I can't think of a single time that someone's condemnation was the thing that led me to shift. It's always been through conversations and grace and kindness. And and it doesn't mean there isn't hard conversations. My wife and I have been married for 20 years. There's hard conversations, right? There's these seasons where you notice all these things that you thought you were done with and you clearly weren't done with them yet. Avoiding those things doesn't lead to healthy relationship. But this calibration of grace and truth that we've been talking about in this series is is what brings actual change. This morning, as we continue the series called How Do You Stand, talking about the the, the posture of how we move towards people in this world, we're going to be in John chapter 8. And our big idea for the the morning is this. God's grace is the incubator for owning our own shortcomings. God's grace is the incubator for owning our own shortcomings. What I mean by that is that the, the, the perfect environment for us to actually deal with the things in our lives that, we're, that are destroying us, that are our shortcomings, that are our biases, is an experience and a response to what, God's grace in our lives. The passage in John 8 goes through that in tons of different ways. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you can. If you, ha- if you use the Bible app and you want to go to John 8, go ahead. We'll be there in just a second. Um, But before we get to that passage, we have to talk a little bit about what sets this passage up in John chapter 7. In John 7, thousands of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, have traveled from all over Israel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Jewish faith system, the way that they were set up, was was all around these seven big festivals that happened throughout the spring, summer, and fall. And this is the last festival of the year. It's like the culmination festival. It's called tabernacles because the people would all come to town and for eight days they would build these temporary structures, these tents, and live out and, and remember when God led them through Egypt, through the, or through the desert post-Egypt, and they lived in tents and God provided for their needs daily. So it's a week of celebrating and feasting and thinking about the ways God has provided in the past. But also thinking about, okay, in, in their agricultural world, winter's coming, we need lots of rain so our crops will grow well in the spring so we actually have food to eat. Right? This isn't like our world where we just pick one of the eight grocery stores that Instacart will deliver to our house. I deliver my food now and I think it's the best thing I've ever done. I stopped going to the grocery store. This is like, hey, if it doesn't rain this winter, we're in deep trouble. And so this feast is all around God providing. And on the, on, in chapter 7, verse 37, we read this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, so think of this, he stands up, there's thousands of people, and he stands up and says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. The crowd is split. Most of the people are like, this guy is incredible. What is he saying? I want to know more. 
And then there's the religious leaders who are like, this guy is a blasphemer and we need to find a way to get rid of him. So that's what's happening on the surface when we get to our passage in John um, chapter 8. So I'm starting in verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is the night before. And then at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus does what many teachers were doing at this time at these spaces. As he, would, he would go into the temple area, he would sit down, and people would gather around to hear what he was teaching. Because of the statement from the day before and his presence at the festival the whole week, tons of people are gathering around. It, it, this crowd gathers around him. And the Pharisees see this as the perfect time to undermine his authority when it comes to the law and scriptures. So they bring this woman that they say was caught in the act of adultery, but one of the interesting things here, right, is just the woman. Just the woman. Leviticus 20.10, the verse that they probably were citing, like, hey, this is where Moses said this, man and woman are both guilty. But they bring just the woman. The Pharisees' concern here, and part of the reason for that is they're not really that concerned with the law at this moment. They're not really concerned with whether or not this woman should be punished at this moment. They're using this as a trap to try and set Jesus up. This is this moment where they, they want to have someone be a prop She's just someone to use to accomplish what they want to accomplish. Another key part of this that makes it tricky is that um, the Romans at this time are, are over Israel. It's an occupied nation, and they are the ones who actually determine whether or not someone can be executed, and they will be the ones to carry it out. They took that power away from the Jewish people. And so this, this is, they built the temple in a way, when Herod rebuilt the temple, he built it in a way that the Romans would have viewpoints of what's going on in the temple grounds. During festivals, legions of soldiers would be around to make sure no one was even beginning to think of uprising, because if they were beginning to think about it, they could snuff it out right away. So the situation happens in the temple courts at the end of this week-long festival, and there's this crowd of people trying to see what Jesus has to say. There's these religious leaders who are trying to trap him, and then you have the Roman military power over watching the whole thing, willing to step in if they need to. The Pharisees believe that Jesus only has two options here. And both options would go their way. If Jesus was going to be faithful to the law, he would have to agree that the woman should be stoned. And, and if that's the case, and if he said that or even started to move towards that, the Romans would arrest him and throw him in jail, and Jesus is discredited. They got rid of him. It's what they wanted to happen. They don't care about the woman. If she gets stoned, she's just a casualty to us getting Jesus out of the way. Or if Jesus comes up with some reason why the woman shouldn't get stoned, it shows he's actually weak on the law. And so no one should follow him because of that either. Either way, the Pharisees think they have him. Picking up in the second half of verse 6, we see how Jesus springs this reversal. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We have no clue what Jesus wrote in the sand. It's one of those, like, I wish we knew type things, right? Interpreters have lots of different opinions, and it's kind of funny that they, like, someone could take a passage like this and they come up with, like, this is what I think happened. Great, I can come up with some too. Some believe that he was just was, was writing the names of all the men standing there with the stones in the sand, writing their names one by one. 
Some believe he was writing um, this passage from Jeremiah that was often used at the, the Feast of the Tabernacles that says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust and writing in the dust there. Some believe he was just buying time and doodling. That's my favorite. And the reason that's my favorite is because I have ADHD and this is how I focus at meetings is by doodling to stay distracted on one thing but focus on the meeting. If you're ever in a meeting with me and I'm doodling, it means I'm paying attention. It's weird. But it's how I operate. So I'm hoping that's what Jesus does just to make me feel a little better about the way I orient towards the world. Whatever it is, Jesus bends down and is writing in the sand and the Pharisees continue to ask questions. And then he stands up and says, whoever, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her and then returns to writing. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, if you are all so faithful to the law and what you want me to do is execute this woman and place myself in prison and be, for being faithful to the law, show your faithfulness to the law and join me. If, if you're so concerned about this, about making sure we're following the law correctly, let's go. Let's do this together then. And he bends back down and starts writing in the sand. Jesus springs this trap and the reversal has taken place and now all the pressure is on them. And each of them must decide what to do. Picking up again in verse nine. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. It was common in the Middle East at that time and even at this time that when these type of like heavy, intense situations happen where people aren't sure what to do, that they're gonna lean towards what do the older people do first? The older, the wiser, we're gonna follow their lead on this issue. And so it's understandable that the way that this lays out is it says from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones one by one and walked away. I find it really interesting that Jesus is back writing on the ground when this happens. Like he has this moment where he bends down and writes, stands up and kind of like flips it on them and then bends down to write again. He chooses not to watch the public humiliation of these opponents. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't call them out. His goal was not their humiliation. His goal is to save the woman. Moments earlier, this woman was stuck in the power move of the Pharisees. They are trying to get her killed and trying to discredit Jesus. Her life meant nothing to them, and now Jesus has taken their hostility towards her and placed it all on himself. Because, of course, as they walk away, they're not like, man, I'm glad that happened. Thank you, Jesus. Now we know that we're sinful and we're just going to be good from here on out. It enrages them more. He stands up and he looks at the woman. He neither condemns nor overlooks this self-destructive behavior in her life. He perfectly calibrates grace and truth by saying, no one is here to condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. This passage is a master class in calibrating grace and truth. And I think one of the ways we can learn from it this morning and how it works in our lives today, what to do with it in our lives today, is to consider each of the characters in the story and how we relate to what happens here. When we look at the religious leaders, when we look at the woman, when we look at Jesus and the roles they play, it testifies to God's grace being the incubator of only our own shortcomings. Both the religious leaders and the woman have a chance to own their shortcomings in this space because of the way that Jesus moves towards them with grace and truth. So let's start with the Pharisees. 
It's common for most humans, I, I don't want to say all humans, but it's common for most humans when we read scripture that we never would place ourselves in the position of Israel or the Pharisees because they're the ones messing up all the time in our opinion. We know the end of the story and us good Christians would never do the things that they did. We would never doubt and wander. We would never use power and things like that to get what we want. But we all know, really, when we think about it, we all know that we often are in those positions. Now, I don't think that, that most of us have ever, like, contributed and thought about gathering somewhere, someone to get executed. If that's your story, I'd love to hear it. But I think it happens in the way they use the woman. It's so tempting and common for us to use people like capital to get what we want. It's so common for us to, to, to gossip with, about others and discredit them and make ourselves feel more important. To curse people in one breath and then show up and sing passionately at church on Sunday. How often do we at work, in our neighborhoods, at our kids' schools, in our church community, use the people around us for our own positioning? To make sure we are noticed only for our good behavior, but also making sure that they're noticed for the ways they're falling short. How often do we share stories that tear down the reputation of those around us and justify ourselves by, by saying, well, someone has to tell the truth? One of my least favorite phrases that exists um, today is just saying. It's like the modern way where you can say a horrible thing about somebody, but because you end it with just saying, now it's okay that you did it. It's like the, the bless your heart from the South. It's just the Northern way of doing it. That person's a horrible person. You should never train, trust them. Just saying. We're so, it's so easy and common to caught up in this way. It's like as I was writing this message, and especially this point, I started to think about the way I orient at work. Like there's people on my team that I struggle with sometimes. Does that, what's, what's the next step I do with that? Do I start spreading that and talking about it? Do I start hoping for, for their downfall because it will help me out? Selfishly, I love the I told you so moments in my life. Look, oh, I told you that person was gonna screw that up. You should have listened to me. All I did in that moment was discredit them more. Man, I lifted myself up so I look good. Maybe in your life today, the grace you need, the incubator of grace that you need in your life is to, is to encounter Jesus kneeling before you, writing in the stand, giving you the opportunity to reckon with the way that you use people as capital. Jesus extended grace to the Pharisees by not shaming them or staring them down or making snarky remarks or side comments. He extends grace to them by giving them an opportunity to reckon with their own shortcomings and sin in the moment and to go and sin no more by putting the rocks down. They're not the only people that have that opportunity in this passage. If God is prompting you and making you aware this morning, receive that grace and love that he offers you. As grace and love, not as condemnation. When we look at the woman in this story, we have the opportunity to wrestle with the ways that we are choosing and allowing things in our life that are hurting us and destroying us. This could be so many different things. This could be the relationships we have with people in our lives. It could be the choices that we make. It could be the things we turn to to hide from the discomfort and pain we experience. Maybe there's a substance you lean on too often. Maybe there's a relationship you lean into heavily that you know isn't good. Maybe you constantly numb yourself with Netflix and buying things and doing anything to hide from the difficult parts of your life. 
I think the woman is, is the character in the story that we can like, relate with the most in the sense of being stuck in a way of life, being, being, making choices that are leading to destruction and not know where to go from there. In what area of your life do you need to experience God's love and grace and truth this morning? Jesus is moving towards you, reminding you that your failures and shortcomings do not define you or disqualify you. Maybe the grace you need today is to hear and experience the love of Jesus, reminding you that because of him, the ways you fall short do not lead to his rejection. He's continuing to move towards you. And lastly, let's look at Jesus. This whole series is ultimately about this one, right? Like, how do we stand? What is the posture of Jesus? What does it look like to calibrate both grace and truth in, in, to other people? In this passage, we see Jesus extend grace to two different characters that would have been easy to dismiss or disregard. But that's not what love looks like. Love looks much different. So when I was working on this part of the message this week, some friends of mine came to um, mind as examples of how to live this out. Mark and Patty Strong are a couple that are here with us today. They're incredibly dear friends of Megan and I. Um, and I feel like they have been such a gift and an inspiration in the dozen or so years I've lived in Wisconsin of the way that they move towards people. So would you guys welcome Mark and Patty as they come up to the stage? All right, well, thank you guys for being here. I'd love to if you guys just share a bit of your story. Thank you, Jake. Uh, thank you, Crosspoint, uh, for inviting us. Uh, forgive me, I had to write down a few notes just because, like Jake, I'm a little attention deficit and no. I tend to ramble. But this is a, a snapshot of what happened in our lives some 35 years ago that orientated us in our following Jesus. We believe in God's kingdom work where he renews our hope, transforms our lives, and one day we'll put all things right. Through his Holy Spirit, we are invited to participate in his mission, rescuing and renewing his creation. When we open our hearts to God, we see our neighbors differently, perhaps like Jesus sees them, made in his image, covered in love and grace, with his hand extended. When we encounter people in our community in need, we too can extend our hand. 35 years ago, during the HIV AIDS epidemic, God prompted us to walk alongside men and women with AIDS. We wanted to extend God's love to them. As followers of Jesus, we bridged the gap between those that had need and those that had resources for their spiritual, emotional, and physical need. I'm old school and I use paper. The reality of what Mark shared was that we met a man named Bill who was a Christian man living with AIDS. Through him, we met others just trying to navigate life. One day a mother called me and asked me to pray for her son who was wasting away and she asked for prayer that he could eat and gain weight. This began a thought in my mind about a ministry of home-cooked meals for people who were living with AIDS. We called it Leftovers of Love. Through um, um, some amazing churches and my former pastor, Mike Franz, and his wife, Jan, we were able to provide food, meals, 
clothing and holiday trimmings to support people with AIDS. I would pack my van to, um, to, I would pack my van with all sorts of great stuff. Never in my wildest dreams that I ever thought I would be taking my three kids down to the Milwaukee AIDS Resource Center. I called it a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Paper, you gotta flip the page. Others told me that they got what they deserved, which I would then respond, but I should get what I deserve. Back on the home front, our home was open to all of Bill's community, to which we extended God's love and support, attended their funerals, supported their loved ones, prayed with them. In light of time constraints, I'd like to end with a story about Bill. His biggest fear was that he would die alone. I told him that that would never, ever happen. The last day of his hospital night, he was surrounded by men and women who truly loved him. When he died, the staff came up to us and said, who is this man that there were so many people surrounding his bed? Thank you and God bless. Thank you guys. Part of the reason this story stuck out to me so much is it was a, at that time in history, in our, in our history, the world and American, there was such an anathema view of those living with AIDS and HIV. And Mark and Patty, because of the, the way that their life unfolded, were in a position to step in and love. Now for you and I, we, we may not have one of these like, situations like that happen, if maybe we will. But there's probably lots of people in your life that are hurting. There's probably lots of people that feel othered. Lots of people that have physical, tangible needs that you can lean into and love. This morning, what I hope for us is when it comes to living like Jesus and standing, like how do we stand, that we'd move towards other people in love, that we'd default towards building relationships, that we wouldn't be afraid of hard conversations that we would worry about loving people and moving towards them in that way first. And when those conversations come up, that they would still be full of grace and kindness and curiosity. This morning, the action steps I want to leave you with are this, that are related to the three different people. Is there an area in my life that I am using other people for my own interests? Is there an area of my life that I need to experience forgiveness and freedom in? Or is there a person or a people that are broken that you need to move towards in love. I have faith that the Holy Spirit will work in your hearts and, and where this message needs to land for you. I know where it needs to land for me. And that you would be faithful in responding to that this week. One last reminder before we close this morning is that there is a baptism interest class after the service. If you inter- like, want to explore that a little bit more when you head out the doors, break towards your left in the classroom 203 or 204 is right over there. And, and we'd love to have there. Would you guys stand with me for closing benediction? As we go from this place today, may you no, leave no longer accusing yourself of sins that have been forgiven, nor condemning others for the sins that God has forgiven in them. May you receive the love, grace, and truth that Jesus is speaking towards you and over you today. And may we bring that to all we encounter this week. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Have a great week.